0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Alec Ascutia. I'm uh, not one of the pastors here. (laughs) Uh, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Jack are the elders here, and uh, I've been given this opportunity to preach this morning. Uh, I thank you so much for this opportunity, Pastor Jeff and Jack again, for this opportunity. It is truly a blessing, and I have benefited greatly from our study in Deuteronomy, and I'm so grateful to be uh, a part of um, this study together. So uh, today, if you'd open up your uh, Bibles with me today to Deuteronomy chapter 16, we'll be uh, reading through verses 9 through 12, and that will be our sermon text for today. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 12, starting in verse 9. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord, your God. With tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we can worship. We thank you for the songs that we sang this morning, Lord, that um, we can acknowledge that even in times of suffering, we can acknowledge that it is well with our soul. We thank you. For all that you've given us, we thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die on the cross for sinners. And that, um, as we've seen already in our reading Acts, Lord, uh, through faith and repentance, uh, the the promise of the Holy Spirit can be can be um, given to any any who repent and believe. Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray that you would guide and direct us in our study, Lord. I pray that you'd keep me from error um, as uh, I'm, I'm bringing the Word, Lord. And we pray that you uh, would move in our midst through your spirit um, to apply these things to our lives and to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. As we get started here, I wanted to ask a quick question. What is your favorite holiday and why? Uh, A lot of people, they may like Christmas for the, uh, you know, nice cold weather, the snow on the ground uh, the Christmas dinner, other people like Thanksgiving because of all of the abundant food and delicious time that we can spend together. Um, and we have all of these different holidays that we celebrate together. But one of the questions that I think we forget, um, is the reason for a lot of these holidays. And so as we're looking at our text this morning, uh, we're looking at another festival or a holiday, and we're going to be discussing the meaning of these things. Um, so, uh, so as we're looking through this this passage today, we're going to be just talking more about that idea of why this feast and and what are we supposed to do with it. So um, as we are uh, starting our our passage today, I did want to mention a couple things. So uh, like uh, Brother Ken mentioned here, um, as I was looking into the Feast of Weeks, as you can see here, as it says. Um, you shall count seven weeks. Um, this is called the Feast of Weeks. But uh, interestingly enough, we also see this phrase used as the Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament. And as I was doing my study, I was, I was thinking, what in the world does Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks have in common? They, they seem to be wildly different names. Um, they didn't, don't actually seem to be related uh, at all. And initially or as you first look at it but there's a couple indications as we see as we will dive into the text that give us a clearer picture of uh, why it's called the Feast of Pentecost and its fulfillment in Acts 2 but um, the important thing to realize is that Pentecost actually means 50 and so the Feast of Weeks is the uh, seven times seven which is the four, uh, you know seven weeks times seven 49 days and then The celebration would be on the 50th day. So that's why we have the word Pentecost because it's the 50th day. We also see that come up in Leviticus 23 when we are told that you are to count specifically 50 days. So what's interesting is as we move into the New Testament time period, uh, this idea or the, the naming of this feast was actually consistently used as Pentecost because of the 50. Um, So as we are going through the Feast of Weeks, just keep that in mind that we are talking about the two same feasts here, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Pentecost. Also, I did want to mention we in our scripture reading this morning, we talked about Joel 2 and we also talked about Acts 2. I wanted to clarify a little bit of the the connection between all of these texts and uh, the Feast of Weeks and our text this morning. So what we'll see in Deuteronomy 16 is that there are themes and shadows that we will confront that appear again in Joel 2 and in Acts 2. And these parallels that we see in Joel 2 and Acts 2 um, are, or these parallels that we see in the Feast of Weeks in Deuteronomy 16 gives us a better understanding of how we are to see the fulfillment of these things, and the progression of these fulfillment in Joel 2 and also Acts 2. So uh, as we're reading through Deuteronomy 16 and looking through all of the different uh, themes that uh, are being discussed in Deuteronomy 16, we should just keep in mind that these things are shadows of what are to come and the um, expectation of those is is ultimately fulfilled in, again, Joel and Acts. I also did want to mention that um, in regards to the um to the shadows in deuteronomy as well um that deuteronomy 16 is talking about uh is mentioning these themes and and shadows that the original readers would not have immediately connected um with uh, or they would not have the full understanding that we now have looking at all of uh, progressive revelation, all of uh, the re- revelation of Joel and Acts two. So they wouldn't have understood every single um, every single component and the fullness of the uh, of this of what this festival is pointing to. But my goal today is that by explaining the themes and parallels and these shadows that we see in Deuteronomy sixteen, we will be just like the men. In in, uh, Acts 2, when they hear Peter's sermon, they will say, ah, I see exactly what you mean. I see the fulfillment of these things from Joel, and as we experience them in Acts 2. Um, Lastly, I did want to mention as well kind of the structure of of, how I'll be doing this. Um, I will be going through Deuteronomy 16, talking about those ideas, and then I will be moving toward... uh, Sorry, I'll be talking about uh, Deuteronomy 16 and applications that we should draw from this particular text, and then I'll be moving to look more into uh, the the fulfillment of these things in Joel and also the uh, Acts 2 and the rest of the New Testament. So that's just a a little forewarning on the the structure of the sermon. It's going to be a lot of observations at the beginning, and then we'll kind of fill those all in as we go. OK, so the, the main idea I want to communicate here today uh, with all of this is that the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, is fulfilled through the descending of the Holy Spirit that provides true Sabbath rest, true sacrifice, true worship, true freedom and true obedience. We'll see how each of these ideas uh, come through in our text this morning, uh, but I wanted to lay that out as well. Okay, so let's go ahead and turn to our text this morning. Uh, We'll start in verse 9. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. As we read the first verse, we are immediately confronted with a command. In fact, this entire passage is structured with five you shall commands all of which we will address independently. Um, So if you're taking notes, you you can structure it by these, these five commands. Each of these words is actually a different word in Hebrew, but they're still all imperatives, all commands for God's people. We will see how each of these commands gives us a little bit more information about the celebration of this unique feast. But this first command gives God's people instructions on the timing of the festival. This is to be seven weeks. It's important to understand at this point the context that we find this feast in. This feast is discussed earlier in the Torah in Exodus 34, and where it's called again the Feast of Weeks. Uh, it's discussed in Leviticus 23, as we've t- discussed, uh, where it's called the uh, where it's referred to as fifty days. Count fifty days, and in Numbers we also see uh, it called the Feast of First Fruits. So interestingly, in this passage, Moses places the command about the Passover and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles immediately preceding and following this particular feast. But in the other references to this feast and these other passages that I've mentioned, you actually find more commands uh, uh, surrounding the context of this particular feast. So you might have more festivals mentioned or other commands uh, spread out uh, before uh, you see Passover and tabernacles mentioned. However, tabernacles and, and uh, Passover is still in the context. It's just not as immediately present as we see here. So what is Moses doing here? Well, as our church has discussed in the previous sermons, Moses has given, given us Ten Commands, uh, the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy five, and he is using this next several chapters to explain what these, uh, the uh, how to observe these Ten Commandments. He's explaining the fullness of these ten words. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been seeing how Moses is explaining the right observance of the Sabbath. This includes more than just the weekly Sabbath. Um, but also annual feasts and festivals, as we've seen Passover being the um, uh, last week and, and, the, uh, and Jubilee earlier as well. Additionally, the context of our passage today, and, and this feast in particular, is pointing us to a greater fulfillment coming in the future. We will explore this more in, in a couple of minutes as we continue, but for now, it's important to recognize is that this feast is not an isolated event. Um, but is in the context of these two other feasts, Passover and tabernacles. And we'll be discussing tabernacles next week as well. As mentioned, the first couple of words in this verse are a command. Moses is communicating to God's people that this is a requirement. This is not a suggestion or a good idea, but it is rather a requirement for God's covenant people. I don't know about you, but the idea of fasting or or feasting to me as being an obligation or a requirement seems a little strange. We have federal holidays and, you know, we're all given the day off and, you know, 4th of July and all these kinds of things. But ultimately, no one's going to, you're not going to be arrested or anything like that for not observing these holidays. In contrast, God's people are instructed to be a feasting people. This is important because we are a forgetful people. Um, this is clearly seen in how quickly the people of Israel forget the Lord at, after the death uh, uh, of Joshua. In, Josh, in Judges, 8, I'm sorry, Judges 2, 8 through 10, it says, In Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Because there was not an intentional remembering and teaching of God's word The next generation soon forgot God has built in systems and structures to remind his people of his goodness and produce a joyous response to prevent this forgetfulness. If the people rightly celebrated the feasts, these feasts, uh, these feasts, they would have been reminded of all that God has done instead of forgetting so quickly. How true of this? uh, How true is this of us as well? In our context, these structures come in the form of our weekly gathering, preaching, the singing of songs, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And let us continue to walk in these reminders and these structures so that we do not continue to forget the Lord as well. As we look at the context of this feast, we will notice, however, that in the Old Testament, there were many feasts and festivals designed for the same purpose of remembering the Lord. But as we have noted above, God has already provided two other feasts in the context of Sabbath rest. We've already talked about Passover uh, last week, and we also will be talking about tabernacles next week. So why is it that God would add another feast or add this feast here? Um, I mean, do you think as you look at Passover being such a significant event and tabernacles as well? Uh, Wouldn't these feasts be enough? Why is it that we need another or that Israel is given another feast? Well, let's look at the verse uh, some more and we'll see kind of this idea playing out. So why this feast? Well, the timing of this, this feast is absolutely critical. First, it is to be seven weeks after harvest begins. And we see that when it says that it shall be the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Um, The feast right before this is to happen in the month of Abib. This is the Passover. And and you could find that in earlier in chapter 16, which is the beginning of harvest. So we have two feasts that happen to be before and after harvest. One of the important ideas to draw from this is that God has so ordered the feasts to reflect, um, uh, to reflect the seasons and draw his people into worship. At the beginning of the harvest, they are to celebrate the Passover. And at the end of harvest, they were to enjoy the fruit of their hard labor in worship of the Lord. Again, God designed structures in the calendar to remind his people of their dependence and love for him. God has provided for them bountifully in the wilderness through the manna and the quail, but now they will experience the promised land, which is bountiful and flowing with milk and honey, and uh, God will now provide for them through their agriculture and through the produce of their hands. This demonstrates that God is ultimately the source of and provider of all things, just as he has provided for them in the wilderness. So he will continue to pro- provide for them in their produce. But this is also instructive for us. As we consider all that God has, prov- has given to us, uh, given and provided to us, living in a society where food is, is, uh, is plentiful and this may be a little easier to forget, but it still remains that all we have is from the Lord and he has and will provide for us. Even in times of scarcity, God will provide. Yet it is important to keep in mind that sometimes the Lord provides um, in ways that we do not expect. This is not a guarantee that Christians will not starve Rather, this is showing us that God provides and what we ultimately need provided is salvation and knowledge of him. Even this is a gift from God, um, this salvation. And so we should not worry about what we eat or what we drink, but rather we should trust our father. And um, as we've been saying here this morning, uh, in all circumstances, we should be able to say it is well with our soul. Another reason why the timing of this festival is so important is in Jewish tradition, they actually associated this feast with the giving of the Mosaic law as well. Notice again how the storyline of scripture is being played out here in the seasons. Israel is freed from Egypt, which is Passover, the beginning of harvest, and then they are blessed by the Lord with the provision of the law, the feast of weeks and the end of harvest. So Moses... As you're looking at the the storyline of Israel as well, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt after the Passover. And then um, one author, uh, Morales, he notes that Moses then ascends to the Mount, uh, to Mount Sinai to receive the law of God and then descends um, the mountain with the law of God to mediate on behalf of the people. Moses is faithfully providing the law to the people, but it's still th- this still didn't actually fix the people's problem. In the celebration of the receiving of the law, the, uh, to the people, I'm sorry, in the celebration of res- the receiving of the law, it is also a reminder of our inability to obey it. What happens while Moses is on the mount receiving the law of God? The people are down below uh committing idol worship and, and creating the golden calf. The reception of the law is a glorious thing indeed, but as we recall the Old Testament context, it should cause us to recognize our insufficiency. We ultimately need a better Moses who can give us a better law um, and a new heart, but we will talk about all these kinds of themes as, as we're moving through and talking about two and Acts as well. So the third reason why the, this, uh, the timing of this feast is critical is because of that seven weeks. Um, as, we heard the, as we hear the word seven in the Bible, our interest, our attention should be piqued. As we know, uh, the Bible uses this number in particular as a number of perfection and creation. We see that in the creation of the world in, in uh, seven days. Uh, but as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, the Passover is to be celebrated on the seventh day as well. So again, uh, this, the seventh day coming up in the year of Jubilee being the celebration after f- the 49th year. <coughs> this Feast of Weeks is recalling the perfect Sabbath rest by multiplying the seven weeks by seven, equaling the 49 as we have discussed and adding plus one, which is the, uh, also pointing to the new creation. It's a little similar to how Christ was uh, resurrected on the eighth day, starting a new week, and again, why we, we also celebrate on the Lord's Day, bringing in this new creation. Additionally, as we look at the number 50 in particular, um, it's really fascinating because this number is associated with the temple, fur- tabernacle furnishing, furnishings in Exodus 26, the tabernacle complex in Exodus sorry, Exodus 27, and the temple complex later on in Ezekiel 40. So the ideas of temple, as we saw in these other passages, and the idea of garden is being connected in these concepts. Not only are there many parallels between the actual words used of the garden and the temple. And uh, you can see that in in, uh, Thomas Schreiner makes a really good case in that in his uh, biblical theology. But we also see the ideas of temple and garden connected in the New Testament in Revelation 22, when it says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. So in this perfect Sabbath rest that it's referring to, we actually find this, the ideas of new creation in the garden and the dwelling place of God, which is the temple. We're going to see all of these themes develop more as we go, but we want to notice all of these threads here that are being, um, that are being closely woven already. So though the Feast of Weeks is a shadow of these things, we can see some clear themes already pointing us to Christ. Now that we understand the timing of this event, let's go ahead and move on to the next command, which explains more about the context of how we should uh, how we should celebrate. So, verse ten: Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tri- with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. The second command is the second you shall is a command of how God's people are to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Notice again that there, there is a command here, you shall. As we have mentioned earlier, this is not an option. Second, uh, Moses also commands that the feast is to be celebrated to the Lord your God. This is clearly personal and relational wording And uh, as the Lord has said in in Deuteronomy 7 earlier, that he did not choose Israel based on their own merit, but rather because of his own divine love. He is a personal God that provides for his people, as we see in the celebration of this feast that he's provided the harvest. And he also blesses his people, as we shall see in the end of verse uh, verse 10. Uh, But what's important to realize too is also how is it that this personal relationship is revealed to us. Well, in the context of of Deuteronomy, it's the giving of the law as well. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, it says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules. This is Moses speaking. Uh, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that, that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it that then as the Lord our God is to us, wherever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. This passage clearly illustrates that knowledge of God is through his word. And as we study his word, we grow closer in our personal relationship with him. Excuse me. Um, As we continue here, uh, he also says that the people are to give a tribute of a free will offering. So a free will offering is an offering given freely or voluntarily without compulsion. So as we look at this, how is it that you are to give a tribute, which is what is due to God, as a free will offering? Which is uh, uh, voluntary. Well, I think the the, uh, way to understand this the best is to understand that ultimately everything is due Him. Everything is for God's glory. But the amount and the size of the gift is dependent, it is based on the desire of one's heart. In other places, we see strict guidelines for what sacrifices were to be given. You see that in Leviticus. Chapter 1. But here at the end of harvest, God commands his people to give out of the overflow of their hearts. God's people are to determine their gifts out of their love for God. We see similar ideas up here in the year of Jubilee, where the Lord commands owners of slaves to furnish them liberally, to give to them free, uh, liberally as, as they're uh, freed from slavery. And also in the Feast of Tabernacles as well. In verse uh, 17. It says, every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. We see, um, so uh, this section demonstrates that God wants his people to give out of their own desire and love for him, recognizing that all we have is his. In our context, this means that our monetary offerings and uh, should be a joyful response to God's goodness. Our worship and praise should be a joyful response to all that he has done. We will talk more about all of these ideas some more, but we want to keep this in mind as well. We must understand that all we have is from the Lord, and therefore we are grateful to give it back to him. We see this clearly in the story of the widow's mite as well in Mark 12. It's not truly about the amount that she gave or that we give, but about our heart, and our disposition towards God. This flows nicely into the next idea, which is that we shall, uh, we shall, it says, uh, then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord, your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord, your God blesses you. Again, this demonstrates that it is according to what each person has which will vary from person to person, of course, and it will be from God as a blessing. Think about this with me for a second. God is blessing us that we would also bless his name. The phrase uh, tribute of a free will offering is making much more sense to us now. God has blessed his people that we would glorify him. But as we talked about in the number seven should, should spark our attention, so should this word blessing. This is loaded language. This is the same word used in the garden in uh Genesis 1:21 where God uh blesses Adam and Eve and also the Abrahamic blessing where he he provides uh in Genesis 12. The people are about to enter into this good land and inherit the blessing of uh these promises. They have received the blessing of provision in the wilderness and they have received the blessing of the word of God at Sinai, but um, oh, and they will also see the blessing of the coming Messiah, who will bless all of the nations. So we have seen that this command is concern uh, that this command is concerned with how the feast of weeks is to be celebrated, and the object of our celebration, namely God Himself. But as we continue, we are given even more instructions about the celebration of this feast. Let's turn to verse 11. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell uh, to make his name dwell there. This next section is a little mi- little bit more concerned about who is supposed to be doing this celebration. As it begins, again, notice that this is a command you shall. It may sound like I'm beating a drum here, but this is the drum that God Himself is beating. Um, God's people are commanded to rejoice. This is instructive here um, for us, even as it demonstrates that even when we don't feel like it, we are commanded to rejoice. We are commanded to celebrate. I'm sure that we've all had times where we come to Sunday morning and don't feel um, like we are ready to worship. But, uh, and we also feel this in our times of family worship together or in our, in, our, in our individual study. But ultimately, we are still commanded to rejoice. There is no excuse not to. Moreover, this instructs us about the fact that God's people are to be a happy people. We are not a sad and solemn people who hate life. Rather, we enjoy all that God has given us, and we are joyful people that encourage one another and strengthen one another. This does not mean that we will never suffer, suffer, or that even, uh, but rather that even in our suffering, we can rejoice. This is something that the world cannot understand. But this is, a, this is the pattern of the Christian life. Even in suffering, we can rejoice and know that God is in control. Additionally, notice again the use of the Lord your God in this passage. You shall, give, uh, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. This Feast of Weeks is not merely a celebration for celebration's sake, but rather a time to worship God. God has personally rescued his people and, uh, from bondage and slavery, and he has personally done all of this. God has specifically chosen his people, and uh, if we, we, if we do not take pr- pride in this because of our own merit, but rather we, are, we praise God in humility because he has chosen us out of his own divine will, that he would consider us even sinners, sinners. Um, as an objects of his affection. It is only because of his glory that he has chosen us and he is worthy of all praise and glory that we can return. So next, who are the parties involved in the celebration? You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who's within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place. The Lord, your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Interestingly, these three feasts in Deuteronomy were the only feasts that the men were required to make an annual pilgrimage to the tabernacle or temple. But you will see here that though the men are required to come, all are invited. Also, did you notice the expansion of these groups? First, you and your son and your daughter, this is the family, your male servant and your female, this is the household. And, and this same word servant is actually the same word that we have already discussed in uh, earlier in uh, Deuteronomy 15 is actually the word slave. Um, and as we've discussed, this is not the, the modern understanding of slavery, but is, um, uh, but is uh, a biblical understanding of, of slavery. So we see the family, your son and daughter. We see the expansion of that to your household, your male and female servant. And also um, we see that in the expansion to the Levite who's within your town, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you. This would be your town broadly and also the outcast. As you know, the Levites themselves did not have any inheritance in the land. So they received their provision from the sacrifices that the people gave to them. The, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, these were those who were on the outskirts of society and that would have had difficulty providing for themselves. Notice that this feast was supposed to include all of these people. Husbands and fathers were instructed to reach out to these people and and show love and kindness to them in the worship of the Lord together without distinction. I think this passage is imminently applicable to us today. This is instructive for us because it reveals the pattern of biblical patriarchy. Husbands and fathers are to lead their families in the worship of God and then minister to those around us through the expansion of this family worship. Texts like these are why we practice family, uh, family integration and why we have our children in the service. Husbands and fathers are leading their families on the Lord's day in uh, not only their example but also in their correction. They are teaching their, their children and their uh, their teaching their children and wives how to worship the Lord. Um, additionally, this pattern demonstrates the moral obligations that we have as well. First, our families, then the household of faith. And then the ends of the earth, and as you see, that expansion in the feasts as well: your sons, slaves, and then those on the outskirts. As we consider all of our responsibilities, it can be difficult to manage all of our obligations. But it's important to understand that we have an obligation to our families first, and then from there, it expands into other, uh, other ministry. And this is clearly seen in the qualifications for elders and deacons. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 says, He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? Our responsibility is the discipleship of our families and then the discipleship of the nations. This is why we cannot be content to outsource our discipleship of our children. Whatever your choices may be in schooling or education, it must be an intentional pouring into the lives of your wife and kids. Moreover, this is instructive as we consider how we are to love one another in the local body. As members together, we care and love those in our midst equally and without distinction. We are to consider those in our midst who are struggling and hurting and celebrate um, uh, with them and encourage them in the celebration together. Lastly, this phrase, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. What what is this getting at? Is again referring to the fact that God's people were to come annually to celebrate this feast to the temple or tabernacle. (laughs) Before the Lord, God's people in the old covenant could not worship wherever they desired, but they were to come to the, where the Lord uh, has commanded. This was also because the Lord dwelled with his people in the tabernacle and the temple later in a specific place. They were to come to him properly to celebrate this feast. Just imagine if uh, an Israelite at this time would say, I'll worship this feast at my, at my town several miles away. Well, this wouldn't be a celebration of the feast before the Lord at all. This would be a contradiction of the commands of this text. In our context, we understand that the the presence of the Lord is no longer restricted to the physical temple. And so we should keep this in mind as we consider this application to our lives. But it is important to understand the original context of this feast. And we'll talk a little bit more about the um, the idea of temple and the, uh, the fulfillment of these things as we move into uh, the New Testament section a little later as well. Um, let's turn to our last verse, verse 12. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. The last verse has two commands that give final reasoning instructions for the feast. First is the command to remember. Remember. Um, You're probably going to guess what I'm going to say here. But again, this is a command. The act of remembering is a crucial aspect of the Christian faith. God is instructing his people in context to remember their slavery in Egypt. But in the context of this feast, they are celebrating the fact that they are free from Egypt and are going to inherit the good land. The Exodus was a key event in the Old Testament and it has huge theological significance. Through the Exodus, we see the defeat of Pharaoh and his armies. We see the plundering of the Egyptians. We see the future hope of the nations and this mixed multitude and in Exodus twelve thirty-eight, that leaves with Israel. And we see the freedom from captivity and the power of Yahweh over false gods. We see the Passover and the sacrifice of the lamb so that the firstborn would be spared. And we see Moses leading Israel out of Egypt, typifying Christ who will come and provide a better exodus through his peop- uh, to his people and delivering us, from, delivering us from the power and slavery of sin and death. You shall remember... uh, This last you shall is you shall be careful to observe these statutes. The last imperative is that God's people must diligently obey these commands. One of the things that we remember is the impossibility of this task. As James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This command was to elicit a dependence upon the Lord. The saints of old were to rely on God for their ability to obey these things, but strive for perfect holiness as he has commanded them in Leviticus nineteen one. And this is instructive for us as we consider the Christian life. We must strive for obedience to God, but acknowledge that it's only through the power of the spirit himself in our lives that this is possible. And we see that in Christ's statements about being born again in John 3. But we must also note that obedience is the natural outflow of our remembrance. Um, that is why these two commands are connected together. You shall remember and you shall be careful to observe. It is through the knowledge of God by his word that we can therefore know God and live obedient lives, not, uh, not living obedient lives for our justification, but ultimately for God's glory. So we have walked through the entire text this morning, and I've attempted to lay out, um, out, out the meaning of these things. However, before we, we close, I want to, uh, we have one more task set before us, and that is to see the culmination of all of these truths. We have seen over and over again these themes and words that point us to a greater reality. So now let's turn to the New Testament fulfillment. And I would like to make some observations from from Acts 2 and some other passages, um, the fulfillment of these things. I do want to mention as a caveat that there are very many parallels and shadows that are pointed to in Joel 2, as we've seen earlier, and in Acts 2. And so we don't have enough time to go through all of these And so, uh, I would encourage an in-depth study in your own personal time, as um, as you have time. But um, for now, we'll we'll have to restrict ourselves to some degree uh, to some of the uh, just to some of these observations. So, as we look at um, the fulfillment of this passage. I'll be walking through kind of each verse and showing how I uh, see this fulfillment of these things. So let's start with uh, the fulfillment of verse nine, the concept of the 49 days being the perfect Sabbath. How is this ultimately fulfilled? Well, we see in Hebrews four, this ultimate fulfillment is found in Christ, who is our Sabbath rest. This has been a theme well explained by Pastor Jeff in previous sermons, but ultimately Christ is our true Sabbath rest that brings peace between God and man. Additionally, as we look at Acts, we note that this it is through the sending of the Holy Spirit that we are brought into this peace and presence with. Uh, we, we are brought into this peace uh, with God. Notice, as well as we as we look at Acts, uh, Acts two one says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Um, Patrick Schreiner, in his commentary, talks about the fact that this word arrived could also be rendered fulfilled. So when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled, they were all together in one place. Pastor Jack helpfully pointed uh, out yesterday uh, in our sermon prep that the apostles, or the disciples rather, had waited the 50 days after Christ was um, was crucified and rose for this arrival of Pentecost. We see this idea of the 50 days again. Pentecost is that 50 day celebration and that's exactly how long the disciples waited for the Spirit to come. The Feast of Weeks is is also called, as we've noted earlier, the Feast of First Fruits in numbers. And of course this points us to Christ, who is the first fruit of our salvation. First Corinthians 1520 says, But in Christ in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Additionally, as Pastor Jeff has pointed out yesterday in in sermon prep, um, the the feast of The celebration of this Feast of Harvest um, is even indicating that we are the harvest of the Lord himself. And we see that in Christ talking about the the harvest is plentiful in in Matthew 9. The redemptive storyline that the calendar of the feast illustrates is also pointing us to the life and ministry of Christ. The Passover is the slain Messiah. Pentecost is the sending of the Spirit. And tabernacles, as we shall see, more next week, is Christ as the true tabernacle, dwelling with His body, the church. Um, but notice the language in Acts t- uh, chapter two, verses twenty-four and twenty uh, and thirty-three. Twenty-four says, "God raised Him up," speaking of Christ, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. And verse 33 says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, uh, he um, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. As I've already mentioned, Morales makes this connection of Moses going up to Sinai and receiving the law. But this is pointing us to the better Moses, Jesus Christ, who through his resurrection ascends to the father and sends the law written on our hearts through the holy spirit this again points us back to this theme of death resurrection ascension and descent over again these themes are just are being played out again and again and the calendar of the feast is again illustrating this verse 10 as we look at the free will offering that we discussed, we look at Acts 2.45, where it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You can see here that the the, uh, Christians in in Acts, as they were um, in their joyful response to all that God has given, they were freely giving to one another. We see that this is a pattern fulfilled in Acts as well. And we also see the free will offering being fulfilled in the fact that our lives are sacri- living sacrifices to God Himself in Romans two, uh, 12. What is the blessing that God gives to His people? Well, this is ultimately, as, we, as we've talked, through His Son, who came into the world, being fully God and fully man, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit. This blessing is not ultimately found in land in this life, but rather in the person of Christ and his eternal kingdom. The observations about God being personal is even more fully realized in the sending of his son who became fully man and the sending of His spirit who now dwells with us personally. And this is also fulfillment of what we see in Jeremiah 31 of, of us getting new hearts. Um, by, the, by the Spirit, by, um, through the sending of the Spirit. You shall rejoice. Um, we are now able to truly cry out in our spirit. Um, as in Romans 8, 15 says, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, We have the ability to truly rejoice in light of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The rejoicing of the feast of weeks is also picturing the rejoicing we see in Joel 2, 21 and 22. Where, as we read earlier, it says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. And this is ultimately uh, fulfilled in Acts 2 in the joyful response of the church in verse 47, where they were praising God and having favor with all people. Um, And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Deuteronomy 16, 11, um, again, it talks about God's people could only worship where the tabernacle or the temple was. However, Patrick Schreiner in his commentary on Acts talks about the insignificance of the fact that the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples in a house rather than at the temple. This is important because it's demonstrating that there is a new nature to the dwelling place of God. It is no longer a physical building, but rather it is, um, it is uh, in his son and through Christ's bride, the church. We are the temple of God because we are united with Christ, who is the true temple and has been in and and we have now been indwelt by his Holy Spirit. Notice also the response of this of the group of Christians in acts unity. They were joyfully enjoying fellowship as members of the church body. But this is only be possible because there is a no distinction in who the Holy Spirit is poured out upon in Acts 2, 47. Verse 12, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, ultimately is fulfilled in Christ as the Passover lamb, who, was the, who is the true tabernacle, the better Moses, that provides a better exodus. We, have o- we only have freedom because we are in Christ. Uh, Matt and I were just talking about this the other day, but the world thinks that we can have freedom by throwing off God's design. But in reality, we can only find freedom in submission and unity to Christ, uh, to, our, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This last command to care, be careful to observe the things, uh, all that God has commanded us is fulfilled in Christ's perfect righteousness as we see in 1 Corinthians 1. Moreover, Christ does not leave us there, but rather uh, makes us a new creation, as we see in Romans 6. And through his Holy Spirit, we have the word written on our hearts so that obedience to God is possible. This idea of carefully obeying the statutes is pointing us to the true heart response that leads to obedience. Um. Look at, at, so when we looked at Joel earlier, verses 12 through 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with warning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This response is similar to the response of the crowd, Pentecost in Acts 2, 37 and 38 in response to Peter's sermon. Now they were all, uh, now when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart and Peter said to the rest of the apostles, uh, and, and and uh, sorry, and as they heard this, they were cut to the heart and um, Peter said to the rest of the apostles, uh, and, Sorry, let me find Find my place here. Um, Verse 37 of Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Joel 2 is ultimately talking about the need to have our hearts broken so that we can repent. And this is exactly what happens in Acts. Their hearts were cut in conviction, and then they obey Peter's command to repent and believe. So as we've outlined here, we went through a lot of content this morning. uh, And uh, I I appreciate uh, you all uh, bearing with me as I try to outline all of these things. But again, I just want to reiterate in conclusion here that the the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks is ultimately fulfilled through the descending of the Holy Spirit that provides true Sabbath rest, true sacrifice, true worship, true freedom, and true obedience. We can see these types and shadows pointed to us in this context in Deuteronomy, and we can see the fulfillment of these things in, uh, in Acts 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you, Lord, for sending your spirit to come and dwell in our hearts. We thank you for giving us new hearts for those who repent and believe in you that we can have new hearts and, and obey you, Lord. Um, we thank you for the righteousness of your son who lived a perfect, sinful life and that through his death, burial and resurrection, all those who repent and believe can receive his perfect obedience and be regarded as righteous in your sight. We pray, Lord, that we would live by the spirit, that we would understand all of these things, that we would continually repent, Lord. And we do pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here that does not yet know you, has not yet repented, has not yet received your spirit, that they would repent. They would acknowledge their sin before you, that they would rend their hearts and that they would come to see the truth of the gospel and, and the beauty and the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you for all that you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Tony.